Welcome to the podcast of top executive coach, Tony Mayo. This podcast is a recording of one of Tony's teleseminars. You can join future teleseminars at no charge by registering at tiny.cc slash mayo call. That URL is tiny.cc slash m-a-y-o-c-a-l-l. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Today's teleseminar is a follow-on to our conversation last time about the five components of trust. If you'd like to read about the five components of trust, you can go to my blog. Here's the short URL. Just type into your browser, tinycc slash to trust. That's T-I-N-Y dot C-C slash numeral two, T-R-U-S-T. No dot com. No www, just tinycc slash to trust. A topic that often comes up when I facilitate work groups and executive offsites is integrity. Uh, often this comes up around the simple procedure of getting to the meeting on time or returning from breaks on time. Meetings are part of groups. Getting people together in the same place at the same time is sort of fundamental to getting things done. And I'm a great believer in being on time. Uh, I generally operate on what I call Vince Lombardi time. That is, if you're not 15 minutes early, you're late. But not everyone operates on this method, as you may have noticed. And when people come to meetings late or unprepared or step out of the meeting often the conversation turns to consequences. Work groups, virtually everyone I've facilitated at some point asks me, what consequences do you suggest for people who don't come to the meetings on time or at all? I mean, do you use fines? Do you humiliate people? Do you lock them out of the room? Uh, Do you reschedule? Just what is the enlightened executive coach suggestion for consequences? Well, I don't really like imposing consequences. In fact, I wrote a blog post called Truth or Consequences that summarizes my position. And I think that is the choice work groups face. Do we tell the truth about what people's behavior results in, or do we invent various punishments and consequences? It's all about you know monitoring, enforcement, integrity, and this permeates the organization. It's not just about showing up on time. It's about getting work done. It's about products that are reliable. It's about relationships that are nurturing and supportive and creative. My experience tells me that consequences come in uh, two flavors. There are the imposed consequences that are punishments contrived by some authority figure, the boss, uh, the customer, exerting their power to try and compel behavior. I don't think compelling behavior gets the best results. People can seem to comply 
they can conform to the letter of the rule, but that doesn't mean you're bringing forth the creativity and energy that the modern workplace requires. In contrast to these imposed police-type consequences are, my preference, natural consequences. The natural consequences are what reality, the world, just in its natural functioning, delivers in response to our actions. For instance, if I take away my son's iPod or Xbox privileges because he didn't practice his cello on a regular basis, I, as the parent, as the authority figure, as the person with the power over the resources he wants, have imposed a consequence. But if he doesn't practice, doesn't keep his skills up to a performance level, and then during a concert makes errors, his colleagues in the quartet may not ask him back to future performances. When he's not asked back to a future performance, or when he hears the false notes in his own music, or when he notices the response of the audiences, he's suffering from a natural consequence, something that emerges from his choices as opposed to something that was created by an authority figure. Now think about yourself in a situation like this. You haven't done something that you know will improve your performance. And then someone with power over your resources, say a boss, someone who determines your salary or the quality of your review, tells you that you can't have something. Where is your anger directed? What is it you're trying to change? Well, the first reaction for most people is to get angry at that person imposing the consequence and to think that they are the one that is, that is the problem, that has to be changed. Whereas if we notice that our behavior or our performance doesn't create the result that we prefer, well, then we uh, notice that it's the performance. It's our preparation. It's, oh gosh, heaven forbid, it's me. Well, then where do you direct your energy? What needs to get changed? What should be different? It's you. You, know? you can look inward. And we get to take on that great phrase from Mahatma Gandhi, which is, each of us can strive to be the change we would like to see. Instead of getting angry at the boss or the parent, we can direct that energy to ourselves, to finding ways to be on time, to practice more often. But here's the hitch. Once you're convinced, and I hope you are, that natural consequences are healthier and more effective than imposed consequences, the hitch is a lot of our business culture is set up to insulate people from the natural consequences of their choices. We're not telling the truth about what happens to us when people don't do what they said they would do. Now, if I accuse us systematically of lying, of not telling the truth, that's a pretty bold claim. So let me give you some examples that you might be able to relate to. When someone's late and they say, oh, sorry, I ran into traffic, we almost reflexively say, oh, that's okay. 
But, but it's not, is it? I mean, you've lost a slice of your life. There's some productivity that's gone from the organization. There's something that has been irretrievably lost. It's not okay. You can work with it. You can try to overcome it. You can compensate. But it's not zero cost. You know, if we contrive consequences in the workplace, especially if it becomes the primary method of seeking compliance and performance, it creates a parent-child relationship between management and employees. Managers and supervisors become diverted from their roles as, as leaders, strategists, teachers, you know, creative leaders into an exhausting cycle of policing and investigating and judging and punishing and creating time clocks and looking for ways to monitor people's computer usage and there's a rule about this and there's a policy for that and there's people who have to maintain the policy and the managers have to make decisions of whether the policy applies in this situation. I was facilitating a group once that included uh, engineers and, and I mean mechanical engineers, people who live in a world of precision, uh, particularly since their uh, area of work was in transportation, which tends to be very time-oriented. Uh, there are also some programmers. The engineers are from a sort of industrial ethic, which means you arrive early. It's a pre-dawn thing. And when you say something's going to happen at 11.03, it happens at 11.02.59, at the latest. Uh, whereas programmers, you know, they wait for inspiration, they like to work late into the night, they have 20-hour stretches of productivity, and then maybe an 18-hour stretch of something that doesn't look very productive. They work from home as well as they work from the factory. It's a cultural clash. And there was a complaint from the mechanical engineers that the programmers were not available when they needed to, to be. And there's a complaint from the programmers that the mechanical engineers expected them to be able to stamp out code the way they stamped out parts. So there's a call for consequences. We must have core hours. What should the core hours be? Who should be in charge of the core hours? And then, very predictably, what came next was, what are the consequences for violations of core hours? What I encouraged them to do was to have a few of the mechanical engineers sit down with a few of the programmers and work out exactly what the mechanical engineers needed from the programmers and when. Instead of creating a bunch of rules, a bunch of core hours and times and attendance requirements like kindergarten, let's find out what you actually need. Well, it emerged very quickly that what the engineers sometimes needed in response to a client requirement was a programmer to tell them the status of a project it maybe accelerate their project slightly and they need to know this within two hours oh all the programmers agreed that they would respond uh, within two hours to any request from the engineers wherever they were if they were working at home they would be reachable. If they were in their cars, they'd be reachable. They'd pull over. They would deal with it. There'd be someone on call. If people were you know, re recovering from a 20-hour uh, programming uh, jag, then somebody else would be aware of the status and able to respond to questions. So focusing in on what people actually needed instead of focusing on what the rules should be and what how 
responsible employees should behave. You know, all these norms, these uh, platforms for making judgments, and that stuff gets to go away. And we can focus on what do we want to accomplish. But the key, the entry point to this conversation was telling the truth about what you need, about what actually matters. So all this time and energy that goes into monitoring, cross-checking, and surveillance uh, can go into actually creating the products, serving the customer, and understanding your employees. The other thing you avoid is employees that take on this role of deceitful, boundary-pushing adolescents, people punching in and out for each other, people who are covering for each other. Because if you put on consequences that seem unfair or undoable, uh, then people will start to conspire against you. It just comes naturally to us. And if you quickly find out that you no longer have a team, you have a struggle. And there's another danger. If you consistently identify individual employee errors, or worse, not just errors, if you continually use employees not conforming to policies and procedures as the reason for your organization's problems, you're going to lose the perspective and the ability to design robust self-healing processes, you know, like in the Toyota way. In the Toyota way, they don't just solve the problem. They want to look at the problem behind the problem. If a certain part is being scratched on installation, let's find out what's going on. Well, it's a certain machine that hits that part uh, when it's installing another part. Well, why does it hit that part? Well, it's got a vibration problem. Why is there a vibration problem? Well, let's look at the design of that machine so it can be done in a way that doesn't uh, create so much excess energy so that you have vibration and have it going out of spec and beyond that, beyond that. Whereas a typical response would be, well, we are, scratches are not allowed. Find out who's installing that part or who's making the scratch and let's punish them. Tell them don't do any more scratches. You know, let's, let's outlaw bad weather. You know, let's uh, have a rule against that. And you see this frequently in the political process. Something unwanted happens, and we think there must be a rule for this. Well, maybe not. Maybe certain things don't respond to law or policy or punishment. Let's dig in and say, well, if this is the way people behave, can we change the structure so that the behavior doesn't go in that direction? Instead of trying to create perfect people, let's create a structure that works with the people we have. But back to the idea of natural versus imposed consequences. You know, why is that natural consequences so often seem inadequate to bring out the required behavior? Well, I say it's because we actively undermine the effectiveness of natural consequences. You know, as I said, when someone's late, we reflexively say, that's okay. When a deliverable's not exactly what we need, we just fix it ourselves. When a team member fails to show up, we, we just go on without them. We tolerate poor performance. In fact, we expect it. We cover for the failures of our coworkers. And here's the ugly secret. We take some satisfaction in witnessing other people's failures because it lets us feel superior. Everyone knows that the person pointing out the errors and imposing the punishment is the one who's in charge. It's the parent. Think about it. What's the first word a human being understands. Not the first one they can say. 
the first word a human understands, the one we find it so important to teach our children right away for their own good. No. We teach children to understand when we say no. I had a dramatic demonstration of this when my son was very young. I had him on the changing table. I was new at this changing business, and I didn't have a clean diaper ready. I took off one diaper. He stood up, started to use the crib as a diaper, and I said, no, and he stopped. Learn something. He may not be able to talk, but he understands what no means, and he has control over his urine flow. Well, think about this. This is our introduction to language and to a large degree our introduction to relationships. What are we learning when our parents teach us the meaning of the word no? We learn three things that we often carry through life that control our behavior even though we wish it didn't. A little bit of consciousness might help us to avoid having these three early learnings determine a lot of our behavior. What are the three things? The first is, there's something wrong. The second is, not only is there something wrong, it's me. And the third one is, whoever points out what's wrong with me is a very, very important person. It's our parent, the giver of life, the person on whom we literally depend for everything. Warmth, food, comfort. We don't live without this person. If that person tells us there's something wrong and it's me, that becomes my top priority. And we get triggered into this all the time. You know, bosses tell us what's wrong with us and we figure this is something I've got to deal with. This is important. They get to be the parent, I get to be the child. Sometimes we get to be the adolescent and start our scheming and our boundary pushing, fall into these old patterns. You know, Tony Mayo's theory of human development is that from the time we get language, two, three years old, through about the mid-20s, our primary job is to figure out what the rules are in this place we've arrived in. You know, we've arrived in this place that was going before we got here. And we have to figure out how to get along. First, we've got to survive. And then we've got to get relationships. And then we have to start fending for ourselves, get our own food and shelter. How does this work? So as children and teenagers, adolescents, we look for clues. We develop strategies. And if you're past age 25, you succeeded. You figured it out. You figured out how to survive, how to not starve and die alone. The problem is, as a 30, 40, 50, 60-year-old, you often use these same strategies, things that were developed with the mind and experience of a 10-year-old, unthinkingly. So much of my work as a coach is to have us re-examine these automatic strategies. Say, are they working for us now? For example, treating anyone who criticizes us as a superior, as an important person, as someone who must be satisfied. That's an old, old strategy. That doesn't serve us now. 
It's just something that kind of latched on to us and it worked for a while. But it's not helping us anymore. It's just keeping itself alive through our own repetition. It's sort of a parasite. I call these parasitic strategies. They suck away our life just so they get to be run over and over and over and over and over and over and over like programs. So this is a trap we fall into because we try to grab the other role. Well, we figure out that the parent, the person pointing out the problems, who knows how it should go, who knows what's wrong with everyone else, that's the important person. So let's be hypercritical. This is what bosses do, right? It's a boss's job. Here's the ugly little secret. Here's the hook. Here's what people fall into, especially new supervisors. If I didn't have to hand out punishments, if as the boss I was not imposing consequences, if the people around me were just working in environments where great performance emerged, where they could be their best, where they could get great work done all the time, how could I justify being the boss? If they don't act like children, I don't get to be the parent. Watch out for this one. This is so easy to fall into. Supervisors, company owners, managers, CEOs falling into the trap of catching their people at things just to prove that they are entitled to be the boss. Well, let's get back to natural consequences. What's the alternative to this? Well, it's a lot easier. It takes a lot less energy. That was uncommon. To let natural consequences just take their course. Allow the truth to do the heavy lifting. Brazilian businessman Ricardo Semler made Semco into a huge industrial success, partly by allowing his teams to self-manage. They choose their own vacation times, their own hours, what people on the team have as their responsibilities. I heard him on a call-in radio show. Someone called and asked a question that was so outside of the way he sees the world that didn't fit in with the strategies he's developed as an adult that at first he couldn't hear the question. The person had to repeat it. The person said, well, what about a person who just takes 12 weeks of vacation a year, who shows up at work seldom or doesn't get much done when they're there? What do you do about that? What do I do as a CEO? That's not my job. CEO doesn't check up on what employees are coming to work and why and how much vacation they take. They take. He said at Semco, the teams simply will not tolerate members who aren't pulling their own weight. It's not the boss. It's the other people doing the work. This is pushing decisions down as low as possible. Think about that. If you could rely on every employee in your organization to turn to the people they interact with and say, you promised this, where is it? I need to rely on you for this. We do things a certain way here. It doesn't look like what you're developing is up to our standard not the boss. It's everyone, everyone, everyone. 
it just becomes part of the way everyone is, the way the company can be. It's built into the culture. So what's my advice? Well, I suggest you have a conversation with your colleagues about how they can let the natural consequences of being late, of shoddy work, of poor attendance, whatever it is you think you need a consequence for, lack of communication, not returning phone calls, incomprehensible emails, whatever the complaint is, how can they let the natural consequences of poor performance redound to the person responsible so that that person and the team members see the truth of how it affects their own work life. Just let reality do the work. And when you do this, you get three wonderful benefits. First, it gets people to think about the process. If a per- people consistently can't comply with the process, maybe there's something wrong with it. I mean, this is going on in our schools right now. There's a lot of complaints about the attentiveness of teenagers, that high school students are sleeping in class, that they're not getting their work done, uh, that they're not arriving on time. Well, you know what? All the research I've seen indicates that when People move into their teen years. Their body clocks shift. They want to be active at night, not early in the morning. And yet, where I live, every set of schools, from the elementary schools to the middle schools to the high schools, starts earlier. Okay, so we have all this medical evidence, all this personal experience, that as people get older, they want their day to start later and they want their active period to be later in the day, and yet we have them go to school earlier and earlier and earlier. Hey, let's change the system. Instead of saying, well, what are the consequences for these children coming in late? How shall we punish them for sleeping in class? Hey, let's adjust the system. Go to where the people are. Why not have the high school start at 1030? So get your, this is one great benefit of thinking about letting natural consequences do the work. Gets people thinking in a process manner. You predict the natural consequences of failure. The team must look analytically at what came before, what comes after, and who depends on whom. There are some great ways to do this. It's one of the things I work on when I get groups together. You know, what is a process flow? Second, The manager gets to be part of the team. Instead of being outside, throwing rocks, pointing out what's wrong, creating rules and consequences, the manager gets to dig in, bringing their experience and perspective to help the team understand the problem and what the boundaries are. You know, often the team members don't have the manager's information about what's going on in the larger organization or what customers are saying or what the resource constrictions are. Get in there, work with them on the process instead of trying to fix your people. One of the smartest things I ever heard from a a speaker was someone who said, it's a lot easier to recruit for behavior than to alter behavior. 
get the people on your team that behave in the way appropriate to what you want. And if they don't, hey, there's probably a better place for them. Trying to change people is a losing game. Let's alter the process. Let's alter the mix of the people that we have there rather than becoming amateur psychologists and workplace parents trying to change people. And third, looking at natural consequences lets people get clear about the natural consequences of outstanding performance too. We've talked about the downsides and the non-compliance. What about the natural consequences of being fantastic, of being very prompt, of being very reliable, of turning in work that meets or exceeds the standard? What does that mean? Do you have a work environment where that just doesn't matter? That the person who's exceptional, who's early, who's complete, who's creative, doesn't get any natural consequences from that? That's a hard thing for a manager to look at. But once you get people thinking in a process manner, and the manager gets on the team working on that process, and people get clear about the natural consequences of failure as well as success, well, that creates a natural intrinsic motivation. You know, sometimes people say, ask me, uh, are you a motivational speaker? I say, no, I'm not very motivational at all. But I don't think you need a motivational speaker. You don't need to have someone come in rah-rah and give them aphorisms and jump up and down and clap their hands and sing songs. And here's why. Let me ask you a question. Ask yourself this question. I ask this of bosses and business owners and presidents frequently. Did you ever hire someone who on the day you hired them wasn't motivated? I said, of course not. That'd be crazy. I said, so everybody here, when they started the job, when they showed up the first day, was highly motivated. He said, oh yeah, these people, we don't hire anybody unless they really want the job. I said, that's great. But now you think you need a motivational speaker. People aren't motivated. So that's right. Yeah. You need to get more motivation. I said, well, if everybody was motivated when they arrived and now they're not, what are you doing to them? Take a look at what you're doing that demotivates all these excited people. What is it about your system, your processes, your rules, your policies that demotivates people, that sucks the life out of the human beings you brought in here? Sounds like a good topic for our next teleseminar. Hope you'll join us for that. Look forward to hearing from you then. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. More information is available at TonyMayo.com. We appreciate your comments, suggestions for future topics, and most of all, stories of how you applied the coaching. Our email address is podcast at mayogenuine.com. This podcast is the property of top executive coach Tony Mayo, copyright 2011.